Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lock Cast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMALOTN. This week, we're going over UFC Vegas 12, headlined by Uriah Hall and Anderson the Spider Silva, a fight that we've kind of wanted to see over the last five or six years. But finally, thankfully, we are getting this fight. Um, decent card overall. Uh, there are some interesting spots. Um, you know, there's a lot of chalk on this card too, which makes it not that appealing from a betting standpoint. There's going to be a ton of parlays out there. There might be a parlay buster in there too. We'll see which one it is. I'll try to hopefully shed some light on which ones I don't really like to, to, to parlay or what I want to parlay. Uh, so keep your eyes out for that. A little bit light on the dogs or at least live dogs in my opinion. So that's something to, to keep your eye out for during this, the breakdown of this card. Um, but some intriguing fights, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to the UFC debut of Adrian Yanez. Uh, Miles Johns versus Kevin Natividad should be a great fight. Uh, Sean Strickland finally making his comeback. Uh, Bobby Green against Tiago Moises should be a great fight. Alexander Hernandez trying to right his wrong of losing to Drew Dober earlier this year. Greg Hardy against Maurice Green. He slowly keeps getting that step up in competition. Uh, but uh, Maurice Green uh, is definitely a good spot for him to come uh, come back to. Uh, Kevin Holland versus Mahmoud Muradov, which should be a wonderful fight. I'm really looking forward to that. And then obviously, Thug Nasty. Everybody loves watching Thug Nasty. He's going in there against Andre Feely, who should really give him a run from, for his money. So I'm really looking forward to that fight too. So a uh, solid card coming up. Before we get into that, though, let's go over my last event, which was USC 254. And let me give you guys a quick betting recap. And it's going to be pretty quick because I only had two plays. Uh, we'll start off with the dog of the night, which completely crashed in 18 seconds. We had uh, Jacob Malkoon, one unit at plus 221. The Phil Hawes fade continues. I will look to continue to fade Phil Hawes in the future. This was probably not the greatest spot to do it. Uh, I truly thought that we saw, we would see a little bit more um, durability from Jacob here. However, the guy crumbles within 18 seconds, and that's an L. However, we had five units on Alexander Volkov at minus 150 as the lock of the night play. That hits for 3.33 units, so that means we uh, we profit on the event plus 2.33 units for 39% ROI. I'm happy with that. I can't be mad at that whatsoever. You know, what I mean, I I loved uh, Volkov in this spot. Surprised we got minus 150. If you guys remember watching that episode that I did last last week, um, I did the breakdown with Cody Safdick, and we were looking at the line and it was at minus 160 or minus 170, and we were just surprised even to get that. And then we got minus 150, so we were more than happy to pull the trigger there. I know I did. I'm sure he did as well, too. Probably the easiest money on the card, let's be honest. I'm surprised people were giving Walt Harris the, you know, thinking that he was going to come back and look any different than he did. Not that I'm saying that uh, he was going to come back and look like the, the Alistair Overeem fight, but just throughout his career, he's not, he's a decent fighter. There's a reason he's like 11 and 8 or 10 and 8, whatever the hell he is. He's not a good fighter. So if people thought that he was going to go out there and, you know, beat a guy like Alexander Volkov, who is much better all around and, you know, uses his range very well, uses his kicks very well, which ultimately was the demise of Walt Harris. I don't know what it is. I think a lot of people were also off put by the fact that Alexander uh, Volkov came in at the 265 pound limit for, for the first time in his UFC career. And yeah, I'll, I'll admit it did make me feel a little bit like, oh shit, what's going on? But not to the point of like, fuck, I, I should go out there and hedge on Walt Harris now. Hell no. Hell to the no. If everybody, everybody's like, oh, he lo Walt Harris looks so great on the skills. You know, he looks like he's in really good shape compared to his last fight. Yeah, you're right, because he was dealing with the traumatic shit that he had to go through with the, you know, the death and the murder of his stepdaughter. Look at the fights before that. You know what I mean? We're talking about guys that, uh, um, that Walt Harris has actually looked 
the same way pretty much in every single fight. You know, he's the way that he showed up at the Alexander Volkov fight is how he looked in the Andre Arlovsky fight, is how he looked in the the the, the Sergei Spavak fights, how he looked in the Alexei Olenek fight. That's how he normally looks. The outlier was obviously the Alistair Overeem fight where he was just dealing with a lot of stuff mentally. Simple as that. All right, I'm going to shut up about Alexander Volkov, but it's just one of my prouder lock of the night plays this year at minus 150. It's a, it's a great spot. So I was happy to catch on that. So plus 2.33 units to finish off so UFC 254. A really light card there. Might be another light card this coming weekend as well too. But I've already locked up my lock of the night play. I'm hoping you guys can uh, kind of figure it out um, with the breakdown I gave for the fight. Uh, we'll see if you guys can spot it. Maybe drop it in the comment section below if you can figure it out. Otherwise, um, I have it posted on my Patreon already if you guys want to go check that out. I'm sure the line is going to get much worse by the time you guys get around to it, but still think it's worth a shot. And uh, otherwise, uh, you guys can wait till Friday when I do my MMA Lockcast live stream uh, where I'll unveil the plays there. Um, again, I'm not on paid picks yet because I'm going to be waiting for my three-event three, three event winning streak. Then I go on fully paid. <clears throat> Until then, though, I give uh, free picks, but I don't drop the free picks until Friday uh, before the event. Just to give the Patreon members a little bit extra, you know, a little extra incentive to be over there. Because they'll just get the live line, they'll get the quick line, and they'll be able to, you know, take advantage of it. Rather than having to wait till Friday when the line may not be the same. All right. That's pretty much it. That, that just leads me into the plug for the Patreon. If you guys want to help support your boy, uh, make this thing a little bit more of a full-time thing. Uh hit the patreon five bucks a month gives you access to early access to the breakdowns as you guys will see all these breakdowns that you guys are about to see are previously recorded as soon as i'm done recording them i drop them on the patreon so those guys get first dibs on them uh they get all the access to the picks as i make them right on the spot and then obviously the last and best thing that a lot of people enjoy is my best bets and prop article where i give you guys the best bet and prop for every single fight on the card that normally drops friday evening as well too uh but yeah ton of value there and once i am able to you know dust off the the shackles and chains of the nine to five i'll definitely be adding more content over there on the patreon so make sure you guys don't miss out on that all right <clears throat> my throat's getting a little bit sore so i'm gonna stop talking uh check out the check out the breakdowns hope you guys enjoy them uh and yeah check them out Miles Johns against Kevin Natividad. We got minus 185 for Miles Johns and plus 160 for Kevin Natividad. Let's start off with Miles Johns, who's coming off his first pro career loss, uh, where he fell to Mario Bautista via flying knee and ground and pound. Beautifully placed flying knee from Bautista, and Johns knew it. Like he didn't even protest the stoppage or anything like that. He knew he got caught in the button. He gave all the daps to, to Mario Bautista for being able to finish that fight. But that was a fight that was that was tough for Mario, or for Miles, I should say. You know, he was dealing with the two-inch height advantage for uh, Mario Bautista, uh, a seeming reach advantage as well, too, but that's always exaggerated due to the height advantage. So that's something that people need to, to realize as well. But that was a fight where he just looked like he had issues trying to close the distance. You know, in that fight against Cole Smith, Cole Smith was more than happy to engage in the grappling exchanges, which is why, uh, you know, that... Uh, size difference didn't make as much of a difference as this Mario Bautista fight did so that's something to note here um, John's you know obviously trading over there at Fortis MMA has a great head coach and safe Saud that 
I am very trusting in. You know, I, I know when whenever guys go down there, they have a really good game plan that they're trying to put together to defeat their enemies. And they have a solid track record as well, too. So uh, I'm liking what I'm seeing from Miles Johns. Obviously, that tough setback to Mario Bautista should light a fire under him. And I'm expecting him to come in here, you know, pretty pretty uh, set on getting a W and getting his hand raised. Um, you know, to be successful, he has to get his grappling game going. Um, he is explosive. He's fast. His footwork is decent. Um, but uh, there are some things in his striking that I don't really like. At times, it looks like he's reaching a little bit too much, which makes him a little bit off balance, which really allows his opponents, if they were to counter, to really be a little bit more effective with it. You know, it's going to be harder for Moz to really get out of the way when he's, you know, kind of stumbling over himself and having these uh, unbalanced combinations and trying to close distance like that. So that's something to note of here. But he is a strong guy, he is quick, he's explosive, and he could absolutely grind guys up against the cage and even take them down and do some damage from on top too. And I think this is a good spot for him to go out there and do just that. You know, there's nothing that Kevin Natividad does that really blows my hair back. The guy obviously has a bit of a striking advantage here. He has some solid power as well too. Um, but in terms of an all-around game, I feel like this is kind of an easy game plan that... Uh, that uh, Safe Sayud should be able to draw for Miles Johns to get this victory here. You know, it's going to have to center around a lot with, uh, you know, cage clinching, controlling, kind of outpowering Kevin Natividad. I expect Miles Johns to have the strength advantage here. But when you do go ahead and have that type of game plan, the one concern here with Miles Johns would be the potential cardio issues later in the fight. You know, when you're squeezing and you're holding on a guy for so long and, and just squeezing those muscles out, it really does add stress to your to, to your cardio and your gas tank. So that's something that he definitely needs to worry about. Um, Kevin Natividad seems like a guy that could capitalize on somebody that has cardio issues. So that leaves me a little bit worried when it comes to Miles Johns here. Um, the line is starting to come down a bit, which kind of makes sense. So right now we have minus 185. He did open up at minus 215. And now we're slowly seeing that money on uh, Kevin Natividad start to come in. And it makes absolute sense, like I said. Um yeah, I, I think that uh, Natividad is live here, but I'm just not the most certain in terms of actually playing the money on him. Like I said, I'm not the most, uh, you know, blown away by this guy. There isn't anything that really blows, or, you know, jumps off at the page at me that makes me believe that Natividad should be able to go out there and get the finish. Outside of the possible, uh, you know, cardio issues that Miles Johns has. Um you know, Natividad, 9-1. I believe he is 9-1. I just want to confirm that number. He's, yeah, he's 9-1. His only loss was a 9-second KO to a guy named Glenn Baker way back in uh, October of 2017. He got dropped pretty quickly, and I completely understand the referee jumping in there. But since then, he's put together five straight victories. He was supposed to make his UFC debut against Brian Kelleher. He had to pull out, unfortunately, due to a positive COVID test. Um, but uh, yeah, that's unfortunate for him. But now here he is back, uh, you know, making his debut against Miles Johns, who's probably a little bit of an easier opponent to go up against compared to Brian Kelleher, uh, who, you know, good striking, good submission game, decent jiu-jitsu. Uh, so uh, he had a little bit more to worry about with Kelleher than he actually had uh, has with Johns here. But still, I think Johns being too explosive, too quick, uh, having some power in his hands, as well as, you know, having the potential to go out there and kind of clinch fuck and grapple fuck this, uh, grapple fuck Natividad, that's something to worry about here. He, he, so, like, 
Johns doesn't have to be successful in getting the fight to the ground. It's just more so controlling Natividad up against the cage, nullifying the the, the po- punching power and the striking coming from Natividad. And I think that's the best way for him to go out and do that. Obviously, we should see Johns kind of just bounce around at range, uh, you know, land a couple of shots here and there, just blitzing in. But he is going to have to worry about the power coming back from him, uh, from Natividad. One thing I also want to know, kind of like I said off the top of the breakdown here, is uh, the, the 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 height difference that Johns had to deal with in that fight against uh, Mario Batista is not going to be relevant here. We got 5'6", Kevin Natividad against 5'7", Miles John. Again, Miles John seems like a shorter guy too. 5'7", seems a little bit of a stretch. So I'd be more interested in seeing what the stare downs look like. You know, hopefully they're both either barefoot or at least in shoes or something where they can kind of see roughly where they're where they're heights are at you know i mean if it's not too big of a height difference i don't think that maz johns would have as much issue in terms of closing distance landing some shots and trying to get out but again i do believe that kevin nativity has some serious power in his hands too and that's something that he's going to have to worry about of his nine wins uh five of them have come by ko and one of them by submission so that's something just to keep in mind all right terms of a prediction for this fight uh i do side with johns i do think the line is a little bit wide i'd like to see uh you know how he looks after coming back from his first ever loss and uh yeah he he should win this fight but i'm not the most confident in it either <laughs> so uh nor am i confident enough on the nativity side either i know a couple of people that are on nativity and they definitely see a little bit more in him than i do uh but this is this is more of a pass fight for me unless we get down to like minus 130 minus 120 for miles johns i'd consider at that point um but i, I don't i don't see it getting there so i'll still go with miles johns to win this fight via decision courtney casey versus Priscilla Cachuero we got minus 235 on Courtney Casey and plus 195 on Priscilla Cachuero uh Courtney Casey opened at minus 260 and it slowly seems like there's money starting to come in on Priscilla Cachuero why with that said <laughs> Courtney Casey and minus 235 ever seeing those two things together is probably uh, a, a huge red flag but you know it, it kind of makes sense here against Cachuero who is just a durable fighter she's not a good fighter she's a durable fighter um obviously she's coming off the biggest winner in her career uh, knocking out shana dobson with an uppercut in that in the first round 40 seconds in but outside of that like she's it's almost like john phillips you know what i mean where if a fighter was willing to engage with them in a firefight they're more than likely going to win just like john phillips beat alan amadovsky you know shana dobson weren't there uh stayed in the pocket a little bit longer than she should have and Priscilla, Priscilla Cashwara catched her or, or caught her I should say <laughs> cashed her maybe that should be a verb c-h-c-h-d you got cashed I don't know whatever uh obviously we know she's probably most famous for her UFC debut where she came in against uh, Valentina Shevchenko and got absolutely molly whopped um she ended up getting choked out near the ending of that second round and then after that she lost a decision to molly mccann then she lost a decision to luana carolina and then most recently picked up that victory over shannon dobson um her style does not change the only time you really see her on the ground is if she gets rocked or dropped or something like that or even just taken down herself but uh her main thing is just plot forward let's not cut no angles let's not try to cut off the cage let's just plot forward and try to throw bombs and hopefully one of them lands on them that's why i don't mind the plays on courtney casey here because 
you know, Courtney Casey seems, even though she's not super high level or, you know, she's mediocre, I'd say she does a better job of calculating her punches and calculating her striking rather than just kind of just winging bombs and hoping that one of them lands. I'd say Casey throws slightly straighter punches, better kicks, um, whereas Priscilla Cachoeira, just winging shots, John Phillips style. She's female John Phillips is what I'm going to say. Um, but where I do think that Casey has a significant advantage, and I think that this is where she'll find, uh, she'll be able to get the fight, is with her jiu-jitsu. I think she'll have a massive advantage when it comes to the, uh, the grappling room. I think she'll be able to get this fight to the ground and pull off a submission victory over Priscilla Cachoeira. Luana Carolina had a had her in a couple of submission attempts, but wasn't able to really pull it off. I think somebody of Casey Kenny or Courtney Casey's level should actually be able to go out there and pull off those types of submissions, whether it's a triangle, whether it's an armbar, whatever it is. I'm not sure if Priscilla Cashwell would actually even tap to any of those, so maybe she's unfortunately going to have to like go to sleep or break a limb or something. But I think that Courtney Casey could absolutely go out there and pull off a submission. So right now in. Uh, Courtney Casey to win inside the distance is plus 300. I'd be willing to poke a little bit at her to win by submission, uh, which will probably be around like plus 350 or something like that. So that might be worth a little bit of a play. Um, I'm not really batting my eye at anybody, you know, parlaying Courtney Casey here, but Pris- Priscilla Ketchra is just not good. She got lucky with that. Sharon Th- you know you know what? Sorry, she did not get lucky with that Sharon Dobson knockout. It you know Shannon Dobson played into her hand and she paid for it. I don't think that we'll see Courtney Casey really do that. I think she's truly going to want to you know keep her distance a little bit and then find the right time to close the distance, try to get this fight to the ground and really start to implement her jujitsu, which where she, which is where she'll be completely like miles and miles ahead of Priscilla Cashwari here. So, um, you know, good win for Cashwari last time around against Dobson to kind of pre- preserve her UFC career, but I think she's going to be on the way out. Unfortunately, well. She'll probably have to lose like two more fights after this, but I truly think that we're going to see Courtney Casey just style on her once she gets to the ground, and that's where she'll have most of her success. So I do like Courtney Casey here. I don't like the price at minus 235, but the inside the distance is probably worth a little bit of a sprinkle, as I truly think that she'll be able to go out there and finish uh, Priscilla Cashwara with a submission of some sort. So once again, I'll go with Courtney Casey to win this fight via submission. Going to be a little bit tougher to call around, maybe first or second round, but I truly think that Casey gets it done via submission. Justin Ledette versus J- Dustin Jacoby. I knew I was going to stumble on that on the first take, <laughs> but I'm going to keep it in because it's all fucking shits and giggles around here. So uh, we got minus 310 on Jacoby, and we got plus 255 on Justin Ledette. Let's start off with Justin Ledette, who's been in the UFC for a little bit longer now. Nine and three, unfortunately, is on the back end of three straight losses right now. Uh, the Alexander Rakic fight, not too bad of a loss there. We obviously know all about Alexander Rakic and his uh, skyrocket to, to, you know, the UFC title contention, pretty much. Johnny Walker obviously went out there and just finished him in uh, 15 seconds. So that's an unfortunate loss. And then Alexa Kamar just went out there and just beat him up, pretty much. You know, I mean, it was a closer fight than obviously his previous two, but he still got outworked in that fight. And uh, it's understandable as to why he's such a you know heavy underdog here. Not a lot, not a lot of people are thinking that his game is truly growing, which makes it a little bit more difficult to really want to go out there and back him. But then also, you know, you, you do have him on his first three fights in the UFC. He went out there and beat Chase Sherman, Mark Godvier, and then uh, Azuna and Wanyu. Man, that was a long time ago, and I kind of even forgot that and Yanyu and Yuan Wu it was in the UFC. God damn. How many fights did that guy even have in the UFC? Where is that? 
yeah, he won uh, on the ultimate uh, the contender series. Then he had one loss uh, against Ledet, and then they cut him. Wow, that kind of sucks for Anyan Mon. Anyway, uh, getting back to Justin Ledet, the guy has solid boxing. That's where he really was able to get his work done in his first three UFC fights. Obviously, the Garbier one, he was able to win by rear naked choke. But we all know that Garbier is not all about that uh, jiu-jitsu life or that wrestling life. But uh, he was able to go out, go and outbox Chase Sherman to a beautiful decision victory, and then had a little bit of a closer fight against Anwanyu. Um but uh, it's not really evolving. That's the issue. You don't see him using his leg kicks as much. You don't see him going for takedowns, clinching up or anything like that. The guy is just pretty much, he's going to go in there, try to get his hands going, kind of flat-footed as well too, so that doesn't really help him. And I think Dustin Jacoby just has him pretty much beat everywhere. Much more solid kickboxing. Obviously a ton of experience in the kickboxing world too. Uh, he did used to fight in the UFC as well. So this isn't just his UFC debut. This is his UFC return. Uh, he had a two-fight uh, or a two-fight run in the UFC back in 2012, I believe it was. I just want to confirm that number. Uh, 2011 and 2012. So he lost to Clifford Starks. Then he lost to Chris Camozzi, who he now trains with over there at Factory X. So it's interesting to see how good of friends they've become, even though that they fought uh, over eight years ago now, coming in on nine years, actually. Uh, but yeah, so he got cut off from the UFC after that. And then he really started to go you know, to all these different... Um, these different companies and then he made a lot of his uh, name in glory where he fought a bunch of big names uh, including Simon Marcus uh, in you know since his last kickboxing fight or at least his glory kickboxing fight he has beaten Cody East who's a former UFC guy and they went out there and uh, beat uh, Ty Flores on the contender series in a fight that probably could have stopped been stopped numerous times he was absolutely lighting him up uh, yeah Ty Flores had almost no uh had no answer for him it, it was tough for for Flores to get anything off in that fight so I think it's kind of going to look the same here with Justin D Dustin Jacoby going out there and just kind of you know using leg kicks using range getting in and out with his movements his elbows look beautiful too that's something to keep in mind here but I just think overall he's the much better fighter moves a lot better too um you know mid maybe middleweight which is what he used to fight at in the UFC wasn't the right choice for him now at light heavyweight he's really tr like coming into his own um i think you know with factory x behind him too he's a much more complete fighter this time uh so i think he'll have a little bit better of a run and in the ufc um how old is he because he's been around for a while now too 32 so he's probably in his prime at this point 32 33 years old so uh it's a good time for him to really make a run at light heavyweight which is pretty much wide open now with john jones moving up to to heavyweight so that's something to keep in mind but uh i i like jacoby here do i believe that he should be a minus 310 favorite probably not you know i think that's a little bit too wide i really don't want to go out there and uh you know parlay a guy like jacoby um Though I do think he absolutely wins this fight. Like the Ledette, his only way to really win this fight is if he wants to start to initiate in the grappling and start to take this fight to the ground. But I don't think that's anything that we're really going to see coming from him uh, in this fight against Jacoby. Jacoby seems like he's working on a takedown defense a little bit. So that's something to keep in mind. Not to mention just his uh, his movement too. He pivots well. He cuts angles well. So guys aren't really able to get on his hips the best. Uh, but his his striking is just... It's much better than Justin Ledet. So, you know, if you if this is just a pure striking fight, yeah, the minus 310 makes a little bit of uh, sense. But, you know, the, the outside X factors of MMA, I believe this line should be slightly closer. So if there's some money that comes out on Justin Ledet and we get D Jacoby down to like minus 250-ish, that's a little bit more of a reasonable line. But 
uh, again, this kind of indicates with me saying that the line is a bit wide, that there should be value on Ledet. There is no value on Ledet. <laughs> I don't think that he wins this fight whatsoever. So I'm going with Justin, D- Dustin Jacoby to win this fight, probably by second round KO. I think he's just going to pour it on Ledet. Ledet's going to have a hard time getting out of there. And uh, yeah, that should be the end of Justin Ledet's career. Unfortunately, this that would be his fourth straight loss. And it's not often that you see fighters actually get four, uh, you know, uh, another shot after three straight losses. So uh, but then again, he was dealt Alexander Rakic and Johnny Walker back-to-back fights. So maybe the UFC's gotten him a little bit of slack. But I do like Dustin Jacoby here. I think he's a much better fighter overall. And uh, he's really going to get his striking going here, which should allow him to get a finish in the second round, at least in my opinion. So Dustin Jacoby to win this fight via second round, TKO. Cole Williams versus Jason Witt. We got minus 140 on Jason Witt and plus 120 on Cole Williams. And this line was interesting because it opened up minus 150 for Jason Witt. We saw it drop down to pretty much even money. And now here we are slowly treading towards back to that minus 140, minus 150 range for Jason Witt. So a lot of people just right off the bat, they kind of just rid off uh, Jason Witt went on the Cole, Cole Williams side, taking the dog money. And then eventually once they got that, you know, pick them line, a lot of people started to jump back on Jason Witt. And uh, I wasn't too familiar with these guys when I first got into, you know, like looked at this matchup. Obviously, we know that Jason Witt came in on Super Show Notice against uh, Takashi Sato. Um, that lasted 44 seconds or something like that. And then Cole Williams stepped in on short notice as well against Claudio Silva last year. Uh, and and obviously came up on the losing end via neck crank, um, but now here they are, both of them getting relatively, you know, f- like full training camps to go out there and actually uh, show what they have to do in the uh, t- in the UFC and where they actually belong. And uh, I do believe that the 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 way the money is going, those people are right. <laughs> so let's start off with Cole Williams. On the other hand, this guy seems like a guy that what's well, not seeming it's fact. He does not compete that often. He made his pro MMA debut in 2008, um, rattled off two fights in 2008, two fights in 2009, one in 2010, one in 2000, or sorry, two in 2011, then took roughly a two and a half year layoff, came back, uh, one fight in 2014, one fight, two fights in 2015, takes off another year and a half, one fight in 2017, takes a year and a half off, fights Charlie Brown, uh, that's one fight in 2018. Uh, and then gets a short notice call up against Claudio Silva a year later, loses that fight, and now here he is once again, just about a year over a uh, year later as well too. And he's not getting any younger. The guy's thirty six years old, so that's something that he keeps has to keep in mind. He'll be thirty seven come December, and it looks like his his skills are slowly starting to fall off. And obviously, it's easy to say that, especially after he goes out there and loses to Claudio Silva. He did have a shining moment in that fight where he was able to hit Claudio Silva with a very clean shot that seemed to have Claudio Silva, you know, a little bit more desperate to get this fight to the ground, which is which he was able to do shortly thereafter. Um, but outside of that, it doesn't seem like he has much. While I was watching one of his uh, regional fights, it was it, it was said, or actually it was probably the UFC broadcast, but it was said that he's had over 100 wins in wrestling matches when it comes down to high school and, and that, that range. So high school for him was years ago, and it seems like his body has definitely gone away from that as well. You know, uh, one of his early losses is to Eric Wisey in a fight where, you know, Wisey is a 45 or 55 or so. He, de- he has definitely put on a little bit of weight in that amount of time. He's fighting at 170 now, um, and he seems more of a brawler than anything. 
Like out of all, any of the fights that I've seen of his, he doesn't really use his wrestling much. Yeah, he got John Kennedy down, but we're talking about a guy that was 6 and 16. So I'm not completely convinced in terms of what his wrestling is truly like. And that seems to be the the strength of Jason Witt is his wrestling and his grappling. The guy is a thick, dense dude that's able to just power opponents down. Obviously, he has solid takedowns, uh, good double legs, is able to drag guys down along the cage, um, and has some power in his hands as well. Uh, I like Jason Witt. Um, like I, th- I think he he can hang on the feet. He, you know, there are questions about his chin. I have seen him rocked in his past couple of fights. Obviously, he lost that Takashi Sato fight. He was a little bit rocked in that Cliff Wright fight. Zach Boucher was able to hit him with a couple shots too. Uh, but now, uh, you know, obviously most recently in June, so we're coming up just over four months ago that he was knocked out by Takashi Sato. So hopefully that's enough of time for him to have sat back and, uh, you know, regrouped and come back in this fight against Cole Williams in a fight that it seems like he should have a ton of advantage from being the way more active fighter. Um having uh you know more to his game than cole williams in my opinion like again i think cole williams is uh somebody on my uh in my patreon discord chat brought up the perfect example he kind of reminds me of john phillips and i kind of see it like the guy kind of just charges forward and tries to land big shots very rarely do you see him go for the takedown like late in his fight against uh um late in his fight against charlie brown is when he actually ended up going for a takedown so that's something to consider but for the majority of the fight he just tries to go out there and out sling you i mean it doesn't seem like he has much technique towards it It was just more so just trying to land the bigger shots and the heavier shots and try to be the one that comes out with their hand raised i think he's going to have a little bit more to worry about here with jason witt um i think jason will be successful in taking him down and taking him down often but my question is the times that it is on the feet if he does struggle to get cole down a bit and if cole's wrestling chops from back in the day actually decide to show themselves jason witt could have a lot harder of a time of getting this fight to the ground than he should um, I still believe that we'll see Jason Wick complete the takedowns. I think we'll see him be able to hold his own on the feet, not really get clipped by anything crazy by Cole Williams. Because, yeah, Cole Williams does punch hard, but, uh, you know, I, I am skeptical of the, the opponents that he was able to go out there and knock out. I think Jason Wick has a little bit more to offer and is a little bit more durable than those guys. Again, obviously, he just got knocked out by Takashi Sato in his last fight, so we do have to be a little bit cautious about that. That's why I can't trust these guys at this point in time. I do like Jason White here. I do think he gets it done via decision, uh, but I'd be a little bit skeptical about actually risking my money on this fight because Cole Williams could absolutely land a bomb and uh, and put Jason White out. So uh, that is a little bit of a concern. Jason White has a great corner as well, training over there at Glory Kickboxing with uh, James Cross and those guys. So that's another advantage for him too. But uh, yeah, th- this is a this is a closer. This is a close fight. So the line is absolutely understandable here, but I do have to go with Jason Witt, and I think he gets it done via decision. Sean Strickland versus Jack Marshman. We got minus 205 for Sean Strickland and plus 165 for Jack Marshman. Um, both guys are coming off a little bit of a layoff here. So we got Sean Strickland, who hasn't fought in roughly about two years. Uh, last time out, he uh, finished Nordin Taleb via second round uh, TKO. That was October of 2018. Um, Jack Marshman, on the other hand, his last fight was a loss to Edmund Shabazian, uh, and that was July of 2019. So both guys are coming, you know, that I'd say that's close to, uh, you know, just under uh, a year and a half that we saw Jack Marshman, and then about two years since we had seen 
um, Sean Strickland. So I think the the whole narrative in terms of Sean Strickland coming off a huge layoff, um, it's a little bit of a wash. Again, coming here against uh, Jack Marshman, who himself has been off for a little while now too. Um, yeah, I don't think that's too much of a narrative to look into here. So I've been messaging a couple friends and talking about this matchup and saying, okay, you know, this is probably the last time that we're going to go out there and have the opportunity to fade John Phillips. And some of them, they get it kind of right off the bat. And then other ones are kind of just like, you know, he's fine, Jack Marshman, right? I'm like, of course, I know he's fine, Jack Marshman. And I know that they're different people, but uh, on on the surface, they kind of seem like the same guy uh, in terms of their fighting technique. And uh, when I did dig into it a little bit more, I, you know, I may have not given Jack Marshman enough uh, credit here because, yeah, he does have better footwork than John Phillips. Um, you know, he cuts angles a little bit better. Um, but again, from the surface, everything is pretty much the same in terms of the, the, the vast majority of their strikes and damages come from the hands. I actually looked into it in terms of um, how many, how often Jack Marshman attacks the legs. He lands about three leg kicks per fight. Uh, if you want to get more specific, he's landed 17 out of, I believe, 40 or 41 uh, attempted leg kicks uh, over his seven-fight UFC career. So that's just something to keep in mind there. Uh, it's not any, like really a point of emphasis for them. Uh, you know, it's more so just to look like they're staying active. Uh, but more often than not, it's more so to just get his hands going uh, and, and try to close the range and land some bombs. Uh, both guys have the same type of, you know, style. Like they just want to go out there and, and try to knock your head off pretty much. Um, so in terms of Jack Marshman, I didn't really, I did not go back to the Magnus Sedemblad fight because that's just too far, uh, too far away. Not to mention also that, uh, you know, Sedemblad is just not UFC level whatsoever. Uh, the Ryan James fight, that's kind of one that I wanted to look at in terms of how Jack Marshman dealt with a guy that's going to have a, a, a bit of a range advantage, just as Sean Strickland will have here. You know, Strickland will have a three-inch reach advantage and also, I believe, a two- or three-inch height advantage as well, too. So that's something that Jack Marshman is going to have to overcome here. But in that fight, you know, he did have a little bit of success in closing the distance on Ryan James and landing some shots. And uh, the first round was obviously for Jack Marshman. The second one was really close. If you look at MMA decisions we only have 26 submitted scorecards there but it was only 53 percent for jack marshman 47 percent for ryan james and then in the last ones we obviously know that ryan james was able to take over land some big shots on jack marshman and he obviously took that round but all three judges still saw the first two rounds for jack marshman so he comes out on the winning end just by a hair Goes out there, loses to Antonio Carlos Jr., loses a decision to Carl Robertson, who decides to mix in the takedowns, get the fight to the ground, and kind of just lay on him from on top. John Phillips, again, kind of a mirror fight, but we saw what, um, you know, superior footwork looks like and, and against a guy who just trudges forward and is always just winging shots and looking for, like, the big hook to land to knock him out. Uh, obviously, we saw Phillips go out there and, and drop Jack Marshman in that first round, and if he honestly followed up with it, uh, John Phillips, I'm sure, with the amount of uh, uh, strength and power he's able to generate, I wouldn't be surprised that he has some devastating ground and pound as well. But we just never see it because the the guy, whenever he's you know in a, a fight where the fight has hit the ground, he's the one with his back on the ground. So if he had actually followed up against um, uh, against Jack Marshman here, he probably would have gotten a TKO finish there from ground and pound, and he probably would have had two UFC wins on his record. 
However, he decides to play the showman, uh, you know, bows for some fucking reason, goes backwards and then waits for Marshman to get back to his feet and then claps his hand. Like that stuff just makes me pissed. I'm not sure. Like it's more so like John Phillips is clearly showing that he's there to just be the tough guy, uh, please the crowd a little bit too much, you know, to the point of just damaging his career. And then, uh, yeah, now we've more than likely he'll be seeing uh, or watching the UFC from the outside looking in. So uh, poor John Phillips. But Jack Marshman, again, a little bit more well-rounded in terms of being able to mix in footwork with the power punching. So that's what he has up on John Phillips. And in that fight against Phillips, Phillips was the one moving forward the entire time. And Jack Marshman was kind of just piecing him up with a nice jab, moving backwards, landing the more strikes. Some people had that fight for John Phillips just due to the forward movement. I didn't understand that. You know, Jack Marshman was definitely getting off the better shots and more consistent shots as well. Uh, and then obviously we saw him go out there and just get absolutely dusted by Edmund Shabazzian, who was able to get that fight down pretty early and then pulled off uh, a rear naked choke. So uh, in this fight against Sean Strickland, yeah, he has a range uh, disadvantage to deal with here. He's going to have to cut that range uh, and try to land on Sean Strickland early or just often. But I think he's going to have a lot of trouble doing so. You know, I think Sean Strickland is just much better all around. Uh, the kid's 20 and 3 at this point. Um, he has come off a little bit of a layoff. Uh, his last loss was to Elizio Zaleski Dos Santos, where uh, Dos Santos just landed a beautiful spinning uh, wheel kick. Um, and it's a shot that Strickland clearly didn't see coming. Like, yeah, he put his hand up to kind of block it, but he thought he did enough to block it. But Zaleski's range on that wheel kick was just insane, where it still managed to hit Strickland on the back of the head, just beyond the ear, rattled him. And then obviously we saw Zaleski follow up with shots and then put him out that way. But the difference here with Jack Marshman is I think that Sean Strickland's going to see everything that's coming his way. Uh, and I think that's going to be the difference here. Like, we know most of uh, Phillips's or Marshman's uh, striking here is from his hands. Like, they're going to come down the middle. He's going to see all of them. Uh, it's it's not like anything Strickland hasn't really gone up against in the past. You know, when you're talking about guys that just have that one path to victory of just using their hands, not really using much else to set up, uh, you know, their shots or, you know, again, I'll give him credit for being able to cut angles a little bit. But again, it's a little bit amateurish compared to what Sean Strickland's have to face in the past. You know, he, he went out there and outstruck Tom Breeze, who, in my opinion, is when he's on, he's probably one of the best strikers in the game. And uh, yeah, Sean Strickland did a good job of just, you know, one twos down the middle, solid leg kicks as well, too. Uh, that's something that's going to be important for Strickland here to maintain the distance. Uh, but I think he looks great, you know, just going through his IG as well. You know, he's he's over there in Vegas. Uh, he's worked a little bit with Johnny Walker, which is good. Um, he's worked with um, Michelle Pereira, which is a, a good one, too. Um, but, like, you know, working with John Wood, uh, some of those syndicate guys as well, too, that's very, very important for Sean Strickland here to get in that type of work. And he looks in great shape. He looks in phenomenal shape. So I think he's, uh, he's really taken this comeback seriously. Um, but yeah, this is a kind of a cupcake for him to, to, to get back into the UFC, get his feet wet and start to just really get his game going. 
uh, yeah, again, I kind of lump Marshman and uh, Phillips into the same realm. So I think they're highly fadeable. And when you have a, a technician on the feet like Strickland, I think it's kind of an easy fight for him to just go out there and kind of make it look like a sparring match where he just goes out there and just kind of completely dusts Mar- Marshman. Obviously, he's going to have to look out for the overhand right of Jack Marshman. He doesn't really need to worry about too much else. There's no takedowns that he needs to worry about. Jack Marshman hasn't even attempted a takedown in his UFC career. His takedown defense is 20%. So that's something that, that Sean Strickland could definitely take advantage of as well in case he doesn't feel too confident on the feet after getting clipped once or twice or anything like that. I think Strickland could definitely land some takedowns here uh, and, and kind of just ride out on top if he needs to possibly pull off a submission too he has four submission victories on his record obviously not you know that's just less than 25 percent of the of his wins but uh yeah i just think strickland is better everywhere and i'm kind of surprised that you know he opened at minus 260 and the line has come down now he's roughly around the minus 200 range which is kind of mind-blowing so uh it hasn't opened up in any of the bookies that i'm on right now uh so i'm looking forward to seeing you know once the limits are open and once they're on my websites what line he's at but uh you know, I truly thought uh, Strickland would be up to minus 300 here. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are going to bang on him for his possible durability issues. But again, getting finished by Zaleski the way that he did, there's no way Marshman's going to be able to do that. And obviously, there's a little bit of concern in terms of Strickland kind of almost having the tall man defense where his chin is a little bit high. But again, he does so well in terms of with his head movement and getting out of uh, the way of big shots uh, that I think he'll be able to see anything that Marshman throws his way. And again, Marshman's not that quick of a, of a fighter either. So that's something to, to keep in mind that Strickland will probably be able to telegraph and see everything that's coming his way and able to get out of the way as well too. So I love Strickland in this spot. I think he's a solid, solid play for this card. Uh, but yeah, I do definitely like Sean Strickland to win this fight and I'll say to win by decision uh Marshman is quite durable quite tough unless we see this fight hit the ground I could see Strickland going out there and getting a submission of a sort as well so uh but I'll go the safer I'll go with uh Sean Strickland to win this fight via decision Adrian Yanez versus Victor Rodriguez we got minus 320 on the Dana White contender series winner Yanez and plus 260 on the newcomer Victor Rodriguez so let's start off with Adrian Yanez who's coming over for the contender series uh, had a couple big wins over in LFA uh, most notably his biggest loss to date is to a fighter that's also fighting on this UFC card Miles Johns they went five rounds and Miles Johns came out eked out a split decision victory in that fight and uh it showed us a lot about both fighters you know what i mean yanez showed decent takedowns for the first three or so or takedown defense for the first three or so rounds uh miles johns really had to work really really hard to get those down um you know most of it was with him clinching him up against the cage and trying to get yanez down uh and then in the later rounds it started to come a little bit easier and then obviously yanez had some success on the feet as well too um but I think that whatever Miles Johns was throwing at Yanez in terms of takedowns and the grappling, Victor Rodriguez won't even be able to achieve at least half of that. You know, I don't think that Victor Rodriguez knows kind of what he's in store for here because the level of competition is just going to be so vastly different from what he's been dealing with in Alaska to what he's going to be dealing with in the UFC, specifically even in his UFC debut against Adrian Yanez. Yanez, uh, most recently, obviously coming off that contender series victory where he knocked out Brady Wong in 39 seconds with a beautiful one-two down the middle, kind of stumbles Brady Wong, and then he uh, follows up with some more shots, gets a stoppage on the feet, but a stoppage nonetheless that, uh, you know, was very, very justified. Um, 
the Kyle Estrada fight, you know, uh, another fight where we got to see his crisp boxing. Uh, the leg kicks of Kyle Estrada gave him a little bit of issues, but it really came down to the hands and the discipline and the footwork of Adrian Yanez to be able to secure that victory. But the, the kid is polished. He has beautiful hands, just as we saw in the contender series. But his footwork is great. Uh, his distance management is great. Um, you know, he uses the range so well with his strikes. He knows pretty much where he's at at all times and is able to close the distance where he needs to and land the strikes and then get back out. His kicks are really good too. But I think the true power and the true strength of his MMA game revolves around his hands. And he's going to have the absolute advantage here against Victor Rodriguez, who looks to get most fights to the ground and try to like, you know, outmuscle his opponents and try to get some ground and pound off. Uh, but when it comes to the feet, you know, low output um slow too you know relatively slow especially to Yanez. you're going to see Yanez absolutely piece him up on the feet uh he should be able to move well enough as well to get out of the way of any type of takedown attempts that uh, victor rodriguez is going to be able to get um the main takedowns that we saw john's complete against Yanez was in the open cage um, he struggled up against the cage. That's where Victor Rodriguez has been able to get some of his takedowns in the fights that we've seen of him in, uh, you know, along the cage. When Yanez is pushed up against the cage, the one thing that he does really well is dig for the underhooks pretty much immediately. Even whenever Maz Johns had his hands clasped underneath the the like below the hips on uh, Yanez, Yanez did a good job of digging the underhooks and then just jacking him all the way up so that he wasn't able to actually complete the takedowns. And I think he'll be able to do just to, the same thing to Victor Rodriguez if he if not easier if he does find himself in that situation again like i said um victor rodriguez coming over from the alaska scene where he's fighting skeptical competition everybody knows that whenever guys come over from alaska fc or anywhere from that region uh they're they're kind of skeptical and they're not they don't usually have the greatest performances i think the best person to come out of alaska is probably jared cannonier but even him he moved all of his stuff down to arizona so it's not like you know he's still training up there victor rodriguez on the other hand is still training up there probably has a lack of uh you know solid training partners and good looks too you know his his biggest win was against a guy named uh jared mazurek who seemed like he was completely out of it come like the beginning of that second round in terms of gas the guy was really gas uh he was slow uh just as victor rodriguez was slow too you know that that's the issue here is Victor Rodriguez's cardio going to be able to hold up against Adrian Yanez, who's, you know, looks like he can go five rounds pretty much at all times. So that's something that Victor's going to have to worry about here. Um, you know, Missouri seemed a little bit more of a jiu-jitsu guy trying to get the fight to the ground, but then Victor Rodriguez did a good job of keeping the fight on the feet and landed good enough shots. But again, they were like low output, um, heavy shots. I'll give him that. He seemed to have a little bit of power, but I don't think it's going to be anything that will stun or really mess with Giannis too much as I believe that Giannis is just much, much better on the feet. Again, uh, distance management. The, the, just just look at the Brady Huang finish alone. Like That's really all you need to see to understand the level of striking from this guy. To be able to slip a hook and throw your hook at the same time and then follow up with another power shot is just it was just a thing of beauty especially when you slow it down and watch it that way it was beautiful i could see him doing the absolute same thing here i think he's going to be able to telegraph all the shots that's coming his way from uh, victor rodriguez and then you know not some uh, proper uh uh, uh, counters and then follow up with the finish too so i truly think that we'll see adrian Yanez go out there and get a finish as well too so you know it makes sense as to why Yanez 145 inside the distance makes absolute sense i truly see that we're going to see a complete wipeout here with adrian Yanez going out there and just torching victor rodriguez on the feet unfortunately for victor rodriguez 
this he's probably going to have to move you know what i mean i think he's going to have to move to to a better camp obviously during this whole corona thing it's a little bit more skeptical and sketchy as to why guys might not be able to do that but uh, if he truly wants to take it to another level uh, he's going to have to switch camps he's going to have to go uh, get better looks uh, probably better head coaches as well too and i don't mean to shit on those guys it's just a different level of competition when you're going from alaska to like all these other people like i'm not sure how many people from alaska fc have truly come over to the ufc and had solid success it's it's very very questionable and again seeing the type of guys that he's been going up against and r.i.p to uh tristan low man that that kid did not look like he wanted to be in there that was a complete wipeout and that was only three fights ago for victor rodriguez this is going to be a completely different fight for him unfortunately uh and we're going to see adrian Yanez go out there and just torch this guy probably in the first or second round it's not going to look nice for victor but i think Yanez goes out there and gets it done at a, a statement of a victory in his first ufc fight we're probably going to get either a first round or second round knockout here for Yana's from the hands, from the kicks, whatever it is. He'll probably find the opening and get the counter. I think he's going to come off a counter, to be honest. But yeah, I'm going uh, Adrian Yana's first round KO. Alexander Hernandez versus Chris Gritzmacher. We got minus 345 currently on Alexander Hernandez and plus 285 for Chris Gritzmacher. Uh, Hernandez actually opened at minus 245 and has gradually dropped down to minus 350, minus 345, and it makes absolute sense. So let's start off with Gritzmacher, who's actually been off for over two and a half years now. Um, sorry, my math is absolutely correct on that he has been off for two and a half years uh he was scheduled to fight jesus pinedo uh before the whole covid thing happened obviously that fight got canceled due to covid and then they finally or sorry no uh chris chris actually tore his acl this was in 2019 i was absolutely getting the uh the, the dates mixed up here uh, i'm not sure why i saw 2020 instead of 2019 for that pinedo fight but yeah he tore his acl back in march of 2019 he's taken a long road to finally come back and now here he is against alexander hernandez in my opinion it's a very tough fight for him to come back to you know he seems like a guy that when speed isn't a huge factor uh he should have an advantage in terms of being able to continuously walk forward and kind of march guys down rely on his durability a bit uh and try to just walk through the shots of his opponents however it's not really worked out for him in the ufc so obviously the chas kelly fight not the greatest fight for him but chas kelly had a lot of uh success kind of you know initiating the grappling uh, exchanges uh, getting this fight to the ground then eventually locking up that rear naked choke in the second round the davy hamos fight we saw hamos get his hands off quite often on chris because he had a little bit of a speed advantage you know chris he has some decent techniques when it comes to the striking realm with his kicks with his uh you know he has a solid inside leg kick he has solid hands as well too but his issue is that he just he's he's a he kind of seems like a vet already which is kind of weird so the guy's 34 years old he's only had three fights in the ufc uh well four sorry if you want to count that uh, ultimate fighter uh finale um fight he did lose to artem lobov on the ultimate fighter as well too so that's something to keep in mind but in terms of just chris as a guy he's just a he's just an all-around guy that's just not great at everything but uh his speed and athleticism or lack thereof of it uh is ultimately what uh kind of uh you know doesn't allow him to really get over the hump in some of these fights and going up against a guy in alexander hernandez who yeah he was stopped pretty bad against uh, drew dober earlier this year or middle of this year right around that COVID era um 
you know, it's a tough fight. Hernandez pretty much hasn't beat everywhere, and it's a tough, tough fight for Chris to come back to, especially after after such a severe injury again, uh, like the uh, the torn ACL he had. He even had an injury in November of 2018, which pulled him out of the Benil Darius fight, and then obviously the ACL tear is a much, much worse injury that he had to deal with. But uh, now here he is back again. You know, considering. Uh, you know who his manager is i'm not entirely sure who it is but they didn't really get, do a good job of trying to get my guy uh chris gritzmacher back into the cage against a a decently uh favorable matchup this fight not whatsoever and the odds absolutely reflect that uh like i said chris's only win in the ufc was against joe lozon and that was a fight where we truly saw the the age of joe lozon really tra- start to catch up to him the guy was slow uh and luckily for chris he was slightly faster in that fight which is why he was really able to get to those punches and joe lozon obviously ended up going out there and gassing out too which didn't really help near the ending of the first round and then you know chris put it on him in that second round and eventually got him to quit on the stool uh i don't want to call it quit because it was it was rough you know it was not looking good the even the commentators were talking about how the fight should be stopped and thankfully joe lozon's corner was uh smart enough to go out there and be like all right you got to stop this fight and that's exactly what they did alexander hernandez on the other side he's come across he's come across a, a little bit of a hard time um you know his last four he's two and two he burst onto the onto the scene at ufc 222 where he went out there and got a victory over benio Dariush in 42 seconds and that sometimes that's not the greatest thing for you you know, when you step in on short notice and you fight a guy in the rankings and you go out there and blitz him in that first round, yeah, you're kind of going to be, you know, a little bit overrated uh, or thrown to the wolves a little bit too quickly. Luckily for him, he was able to go out there and outgrind Olivier Obama-Mercier. That's kind of a prime Alexander Hernandez type of fight where he's able to be the stronger guy, the faster guy, and get the better of the grappling exchanges, which is uh, which is something I think that would be pretty uh, important for him to be able to go out there and implement here against Chris Kurtzmacher. Donald Cerrone, we kind of saw that fight where, you know, uh, Hernandez just wasn't ready for that type of step up. The Francisco Trinaldo fight entirely was a, a very inactive fight. It, there wasn't much to really take from that fight other than the fact that these guys are just staring at each other for a full 15 minutes. He goes out there and gets the decision victory there. And then Drew Dober, you know, we saw Drew Dober, you know, match his speed, uh, was the one pushing the pressure, um, cutting off the cage very well. Uh, it, you know, more often than not, you saw Alexander Hernandez there with his back to the cage, uh, trying to find room, trying to get out of the way, try to throw shots and pivot off and angle off and try to get back into open space. But then Drew Dober did a really good job of kind of walking him back down to the fence and kind of just cutting off the cage anytime he tried to circle off. Uh, and then Drew Dober's punches finally start to come together, land on the target against Alexander Hernandez, and that really, really screwed up hernandez i don't think that hernandez will have that issue here against gritzmacher he might be on his back foot but i think he, the he'll have the ability to go out there and uh, rely on his grappling and his wrestling because i truly believe he'll be able to take down gritzmacher without much issue um, and i think that's where he'll be able to steal the fight uh, obviously he'll be the quicker one on the feet he will have to you know eat a little bit of damage from chris because i do think that chris will be able to still land again he likes to just bite down on his mouthpiece walk through the fire that his opponents throw at him and he still tries to land a couple shots but man chris is just so hittable it, it's not a good look whatsoever i, I you know 
surprised that he took this fight like like I said especially coming off an ACL injury and one more thing to note is Chris uh, before the uh, the Joe Lozon fight you did see him working with those guys over at ATT he did have Pahumpa in his corner as well too for that fight I'm not sure if he's going to have Pahumpa this time around or any of those ATT guys either you know going through his Instagram it didn't seem like he made the trip down to Florida this time uh, it seemed like he stuck there in North Carolina with that team that he was with over there so uh, that that's something to take into consideration as well here too but I truly believe that hernandez is more than deserving of this chalk line that he's at a minus 345 minus 350 so i do like him in this spot uh i wouldn't play him straight up but i do uh i would look at him as a potential parlay piece for something on this card or even something later on uh you know in the month as well so yeah i like hernandez to win this fight i wouldn't be surprised if he got the finish either chris you know again durable so i'll give him that but i'll go with uh hernandez to win this fight probably second round submission or or TKO, but I truly think that Hernandez completely outclasses Chris Grutzmacher here. So, uh, yeah, I got Hernandez via second-round stoppage. Bobby Green against Tiago Moises. We got minus 275 on King Bobby Green and plus 235 on Tiago Moises. Um, and the line is starting to widen. Uh, he was roughly around that minus 240 range, and now it's uh, slowly widening up to that minus 275 range. I wouldn't even be surprised if we see a minus 300 come fight time. So, Let's start off with King Bobby Green. He's coming off three straight victories now over Clay Guida, Lano Venata, and then Alan Patrick, most recently on September 12th. But this is a guy who's completely taking advantage of the fact that the UFC is doing so many events and they're willing to rebook these uh, these fighters relatively quickly. So during this whole COVID era, we've already seen Bobby Green rack up three Ws, uh, and that's since June 20th. So within the span of just over four months, uh, he's going in there and getting four fights. And it could possibly be four victories. And it's crazy that he's able to go out there and get five fights in the span of 12 months. That's the most he's ever done, at least in his UFC career. The one thing that has plagued Bobby Green in the past before was his lack of being able to stay active. You know, he would go out there and get a victory and then he would just disappear for a bit. Or he'd go out there and get a loss and then disappear for a bit. And... um now it seems like he's really putting it together with solid decision victories, all three decision victories last time out. Um, but uh, he seems like he's really truly coming into his own. And it's weird to say that for a guy that's coming into his 39th MMA fight, um, you know, he's 34 years old. This is definitely the peak of his career in terms of where his skill set is going to be. And, you know, pro this probably being the highest level that he'll ever be at. So he's really going to have to string these victories together, maybe get some finishes if possible. Obviously, it's easier said than done. But if he was getting finishes, he probably will be getting a little bit more of a push, uh, you know, with, with some of the guys that he was fighting. But uh, against Thiago Moises here, he has an interesting foe who, you know, high-level jiu-jitsu player but seems like he doesn't show as much of it in the mma realm as he did in the jiu-jitsu realm you know obviously that's 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 false when you're talking about his last fight against michael johnson where got completely lit up in that first round and then in the second round knew he was down knew he was down big too and just pretty much came out there got the fight to the ground or got it into the grappling realm as quickly as possible and then pulled off an ankle or a heel hook ankle lock whatever you want to call it but he went out there and submitted michael johnson quickly in that second round 
pretty much the story of Michael Johnson's career. You know what I mean? He goes out there, gets a solid lead ahead of his opponents, and then somehow decides to drop the ball in the second or third round. So uh, good for Tiago Moises for exploiting that. Uh, but the majority of his UFC career hasn't really looked like that. But Neil Darius was doing a good job in terms of getting Moises down, and Moises didn't really have the best answer to being able to pull off his jiu-jitsu against another high-level jiu-jitsu guy in Benio Darius. Kurt Hollibaugh, he had some success in getting Hollibaugh down. But in terms of passing the guard or like threatening with submissions or anything like that, he was never really close. There was like one little split second where he had a rear naked choke locked in but didn't really have the hooks or anything. And Kurt Hollibaugh was able to spin out of it. But... Uh, you know, I expect a little bit higher level of jiu-jitsu from a guy who has been such uh, so highly touted in that realm. Obviously, the Demir is Magula fight. You can't knock him for that. Is Magulov, in my opinion, like I've said time and time again, that guy is a top five fighter waiting to happen. It's just unfortunate that he's just not able to stay active enough in the cage. Uh, but with Tiago Moises now, Bobby Green has a, a, a weird test here. So we know on the feet, Bobby Green will more than likely go out there and outstrike Moises. Moises, you know, considering he's mainly a jiu-jitsu guy, has solid head kicks, has some solid elbows as well too. But one thing that lacks for him uh, on my side of things is the fact that he's just not uh, busy enough. You know what I mean? He could go out there and land some decent strikes, but it's just not throwing enough and is able to allow his opponent to really get ahead in, uh, you know, in the output department. And I fully expect Bobby Green to be landing the cleaner and better shots in this fight. My concern, however, is the fact that Bobby Green's takedown defense, even though it's at 72%, he's been taken down at least once in eight of his 14 uh, UFC fights. It's something that will that seems to pretty much happen more often than not. Um, you know, uh, Clay Guido is able to get him down. Uh, and the one thing that Bobby Green does is when he's trying to work back to his feet, he really does give up his back. And that's a little bit of a concern here against a high-level jiu-jitsu guy in Tiago Moises. With that said, uh, just as I was talking about it in the Tiago Moises breakdown, I'm not the most... Uh, you know, I'm not the most sold on Moises' jiu-jitsu when it comes to the MMA game. Yeah, the ankle lock was great and all that, but I don't think he's going to be able to pull off something like that against a guy like Bobby Green. I, though, again, my, my only lingering issue here with Bobby Green is he will get taken down, uh, but I don't expect him to get controlled for that long. However, giving up the back every time he's trying to get back to his feet is a little bit of a concern against, a again, a high-level jiu-jitsu guy like Tiago Moises. With that said, I don't feel comfortable playing Bobby Green higher than minus 300 here. He should absolutely go out there and do work on Tiago Moises on the feet. It's just the the... The, the slight little mistakes that Bobby Green could potentially make that will allow uh, Tiago Moises to go out there and get a submission victory of sorts. Um, I don't think yet. Yeah, I'm pretty certain that uh, Bobby Green has never been submitted in his career. So that's, you know, that's something that he should uh, hold in high regard. However, Tiago Moises, if you do give up his back uh, or if you do give him his back, so yeah, just confirming Bobby Green has lost via submission twice out of 10 uh, career losses. But I, I I like Bobby Green here. I do think that more often than not, this fight will remain on the feet. We'll see him use his slick boxing, some slick kickboxing as well, um, and, and kind of outpoint Tiago Moyes this year. He just needs to be very, very careful in terms of when this fight gets into the clinch exchanges, once it gets to the you know those exchanges where Tiago Moises is pushing for a takedown, pushes him up against the cage, and then you know possibly gives up his back. I could absolutely see Moises kind of just hopping on the back, sinking in the chokes, or sorry, the chink, sinking in the hooks, and then working towards a choke, or even just winning off of uh, control time for just keeping Bobby Green in those positions. So I think it's a little bit closer of a fight than the 
than the odds are currently suggesting. But with that said, I just don't feel super confident in playing Tiago Moises here, who, you know, kind of similar to like Walt Harris and, and Jared Cannonier from last week, they have a limited path to victory. Uh, you know, what Moises is having to be to make sure that he clamps on to, to Bobby Green. But Bobby Green has shown solid abilities to, to get out of those tough positions. Uh, you know, maybe not to the level of Tiago Moises when it comes to the jiu-jitsu, but I do like Bobby Green to still go out there and on point and get this fight. So I'm taking Bobby Green to win this fight. Still think the odds, odds are a little bit wide, but I got Bobby Green to win this fight via decision. Greg Hardy versus Maurice Green. We got minus 310 on Greg Hardy and plus 255 on Maurice Green, who's making uh, his return after a victory over Gian Vellante in a fight where it looked like uh, he's probably going to get grounded out in that third round. Um, but for some reason, like it's funny, most most websites don't even have an official choke named for uh, what Maurice Green was able to pull off against Gian Vellante. If most remember, it was like... Uh, it's like an arm triangle choke from the bottom from half guard. Probably one of the weirdest ever chokes you've ever seen. But even on topology, they have it classified as modified choke from bottom. <laughs> it's just hilarious. Um, yeah, Gian Volante, before getting wrapped up in that choke, uh, was going ham on uh, on Maurice Green. You know, he dropped him with a beautiful shot. And then from on top was trying to land, uh, you know, the finishing blows. Wasn't able to really put Maurice Green out. And then, uh, you know going into that uh, that choke he was just completely exhausted and gassed probably one of the most frustrating fights ever uh if you're in john Vellante's corner unfortunately for keith trimble that's something that he puts up with pretty much in every single john Vellante fight so i'm sure this one truly really fucked him up though because that was a very strong third round from john Vellante, especially after dropping race screen but unfortunately exhaustion got the best of him and he tapped out to probably one of the pussiest chokes i've ever seen in my life um yeah, so Maurice Green, uh, what we normally get from him is a guy that's quite mobile for a heavyweight, uh, likes to throw, you know, pick apart strikes from the distance, uh, likes the knee stomp, uh, you know, the, the leg stomp to the knee, uh, likes kicking the legs as well too, uh, likes using his range, good one-two down the middle from range. Uh, but one thing that uh, does seem to really bite him in the butt is that ex- that extended pace eventually starts to catch up with him. Um, obviously, the Jeff Hughes fight, that was a fight that he went out there and won and outpaced Jeff Hughes. Uh, Junior Albini finished him in the first round. Sergey Pavlovich rocked him, hurt him, dropped him, and eventually f- uh, pounded him out. Alexio Linick obviously pulls off the armbar, but then Gian Volante, that was a fight where he had some success from the outside with landing on Gian Volante, but Volante was just, you know, slow, plotting, completely out of shape. That's something that we need to definitely address in that fight. But Marie Screen was still having trouble in terms of really putting Gian Volante away until, you know, Gian Volante just put himself away by exhausting himself trying to put away uh, Marie Screen. But, um, this is an intriguing fight for Greg Hardy. You know, he's dealing with a guy that likes to deal with a little bit of output, but I think he's going to have some trouble once he really starts to eat the leg kicks of Greg Hardy. You know, we did see a little bit of an evolution from Greg Hardy's game once that or once that Ben Ben Sassoli fight started to come into play. That was a fight where I just hammered the under because I truly believe that Greg Hardy was still in that phase of his career where he just thought it was first round or bust for him. Uh, but in that fight, he really turned it around. We saw a solid three round performance from him. And say what you want about him taking his puffer in between rounds, I don't think it truly helped him that that much. But regardless, he still went out there and put on a solid three round clinic, kicking the leg of Ben Sassoli and then letting his hands go every now and then uh damaging uh ben sasoli uh you know pretty well the what was the the 
the last fight. Jorgen de Castro, or actually, you know, let's touch on the Volkov fight a little bit. That was a fight where he actually broke his hand, I believe it was. So he was pretty much rendered useless in his le- uh, right hand. So his left hand was pretty much doing all of the work. But when you're going up against a high-level fighter like Alexander Volkov, that's just not going to be enough. The skill discrepancy was too much. Volkov did a good job of keeping the distance, using his leg kicks, and really touching up Greg Hardy. So that was very really difficult. But the Jorgen de Castro fight is a fight where we saw the return of the Ben Sassoli type Greg Hardy, where he goes out there and just outpoints his opponent. You know, de Castro did solid in that first round, landing some solid leg kicks. But after that, it seemed like uh, there was a check that Greg Hardy was able to complete, which hurt uh, Jorgen de Castro's foot, which really rendered him immobile for the remaining uh, the remainder of the fight, which allowed Greg Hardy to go out there, get his kicks off, get his punches off, and do solid enough work from the outside to take the decision victory there. Now here against Maurice Green, I feel like he's gonna he's in a little bit of a battle in terms of the output. He's gonna have to pick it up slightly more, and I'm not sure uh, if that's something that his cardio will truly be able to handle here. But then again, I don't truly believe in the cardio of Maurice Green either. I can absolutely see Greg Hardy going out there and landing a beautiful shot to drop Maurice Green, and then maybe you know finish off with the ground and pound. But that's truly if Greg Hardy wants to go that route of things, and personally. I think that's the best route for him. Like if he goes out there and just tries to wipe Maurice Green, more likely than not, he's going to catch Green. He's going to put him down. And he's going to be able to TKO him. I think, however, that he's going to continue with this decision-like performance, trying to maintain uh, a solid cardio for 15 minutes. Um, and it could get closer than most think. You know, I mean, if Maurice Green just continues to stay out there, landing a jab, landing a push kick, landing a, you know, just teeps to the leg, it could add up to the judges' scorecards. But I truly think it's going to be, uh, you know, output versus, you know, slightly less output, but with higher power from Greg Hardy. And that's where I think that's really going to turn because we'll see the solid leg kicks of Greg Hardy really chip away at what Maurice Green is having. You know, Volante had a, a lot of success with chopping away at the, the the legs of Maurice Green, and that's what eventually led to him opening up the head and dropping him. But, um, you know, uh, one, one another thing to really take into consideration here is Maurice Green apparently moved to New Albuquerque, New Mexico now, Full-time, that's something that he said that he wanted to do after the, the Gian Vellante fight. And you know what? Let's just quickly look over at the Instagram if that's exactly what he ended up doing because that would have been a really good spot for him to to do. So uh, what do we got here? He's uh, another crucial part of camp. Thanks, Garrett from Legion Iron Gym. Where's Legion Iron Gym? Let's see where these guys are. Albuquerque, you know what? New Mexico. So it looks like he's truly gone out there and, and officially moved to Albuquerque. Uh, to to do some solid work over there so it looks like he's trying to put on a little bit of muscle uh going over there at legion iron gym uh obviously working with those guys at um working with those guys at jackson wink we look it looks like we got who are some of the names here we got juan adams in the gym we got uh let's see who he tagged this this fight this picture was from about two days ago we got um, some of these guys I, I can kind of recognize, but I just can't really see. Chad Inspire, I'm not sure entirely who that is. Uh, looks like he was working with Carlos Condit. Uh, Coach Wink is obviously there too. Um, Dontel Mays is there doing work. Uh, like I said, Juan Adams. Uh, the Blessing. 
90. So this guy's 1 and 0. Kind of looks like uh, OSP, which is kind of tripping me out. That's why I'm like, this guy looks like somebody that I'm, I'm familiar with. But yeah, so Maurice Green has definitely obviously been doing work over there. Jackson Wink, which is good for him. Uh, but yeah, I still truly like... Um, I still like Greg Hardy here. I think it's going to come down to the power eventually, and uh, I, I think he, he could, you know, he could actually knock him out here too. That's definitely something that he could, uh, he could do. Um, do I feel comfortable laying chalk on Greg Hardy though at minus three ten? Probably not. Not not right now. Like again, as bad as Maurice Green is, I'm not hundred percent sure if. Uh, that's the spot for Greg Hardy and that's the spot for me you know what I mean I think he wins I think he gets it done uh but I'm interested to see what kind of improvements uh, Maurice Green is able to make fully working full-time at Jackson Wink if he's able to sustain the cardio over that amount of time uh and just chip away at, at Greg Hardy from the outside maybe just throw a couple more kicks but again I think it will come down to the kicking game unfortunately it's going to be Greg Hardy and uh, his team over there at AT&T who are doing a phenomenal job in terms of transforming him from a football player to an MMA fighter and it's doing well so hopefully we see continued improvement for from Greg Hardy because he could definitely be uh, a problem uh, in that heavyweight division if he continues to groom his game so I'll go with Greg Hardy to win this fight personally I think he need, it should be best if he goes for the knockout so maybe first or second round KO but he may have a little bit of a um, you know a, a, wanting to go out there and win a decision but I, I don't think that's the right way to go against a guy in uh, Maurice Green who seems like he could you know continue with the output and uh, potentially make this a lot closer than the odds suggest so again I'll go Greg Hardy probably second round KO because that would be the best weight for him uh, but wouldn't be surprised with either a decision either so it's going to come down to the power strikes and the output again I'm just trying to ramble on for some fucking reason here final pick Greg Hardy via second round KO Kevin Holland versus Mahmoud Muradov. We got minus 155 on Kevin Holland and plus 135 on Mahmoud. Um the line the line movement has been interesting since it dropped so bet online dropped uh this uh, pretty much as a pick em. then we saw heavy steamage towards kevin holland up to the minus 220 range and now we're finally seeing it settle roughly around that minus 150 minus 160 range which kind of makes sense so on initial look this was a spot that i thought that it was going to be prime for uh mahmoud Muradov. you know i i liked his style and everything that i could remember up for, up until that point of him but um you know, once you once you really start to dust off the tape, you kind of get a better understanding. And you got to put a little bit of an asterisk on both of his first two UFC fights, as both of them were on short notice. Um, you know, the the D. Carrico fight he took on two weeks, the, the Trevor Smith fight he took on three weeks notice, uh, and now this one he was actually scheduled to fight. Um, man, uh, I got I got to make sure I get this name right before I I, I blow it. So he was supposed to fight Christoph Jotko. And then Jotko had to pull out an insteps Kevin Holland on short notice. So it's him on the other side now. He was the one getting prepared for this fight for a while, and uh, then his opponent gets switched up on him. I'm not sure how much that would have, uh, how much that would really hurt him in terms of his preparations here. But at least we know that he can get his cardio and his stamina and his durability on point. Um, something that we did notice and see in the Di Carrico fight 
was that he started to look like he was gassing in that third round. That's something that was a little bit of a concern. Um, but once you actually realize that, yeah, he did take that fight on relatively short notice, uh, you know, it makes sense as to why he was starting to gas. Um, we did see a little bit better of a gas tank in that Trevor Smith fight. But just as, you know, the, it, there's one thing that, that really helps a fighter's cardio, and that's confidence. And when you know that you're doing very well against a fighter for, you know, 10 minutes, 12 minutes, your cardio is going to look after that amount, look good after that amount of time because you're not exerting too much energy. You're not stressing yourself. Things are going good. So you're able to go out there and just implement your game plan without much worries. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, in this fight against Kevin Holland, um, I think it's going to be a little bit tougher for him to really get set and actually, uh, uh, build that confidence because you really notice from Murdov he's a little bit of a slower starter he tries to you know pop the one two out there pop the jab out there get a little bit of a feel of the range and the movement of his opponents and then he really starts to open up but he does rely heavily on his power one two down the middle just to blitz and more often than not it lands very well but he does a really good job of switching up the target of his as well too whether it's the one to the face and then the two to the body or the you know one to the body and the two to the face he does a really good job of that and then obviously that combination that he finished trevor smith with that was set up for you know a couple minutes before that where he just continuously you know followed up that one to the body so that's what he did in this you know in that in that finishing sequence against trevor smith he lands the one to the face rips a two to the body and then he sees trevor smith bring his guard down and he follows back over with the right hook and which pretty much puts out trevor smith on the spot beautiful beautiful sequence and beautiful finish there and even you know more beautiful uh fight iq to be able to line that up and really um you know set that up for a couple minutes not just that one you know it just wasn't that one exchange that allowed him to get the finish it was uh, a, a momentous uh, build up up into that point to to get Trevor Smith to react in certain ways so that he could open up the head some more um, I think it's going to be a little bit more difficult with Kevin Holland though because Kevin Holland I feel like won't allow those you know those moments for Muradov to get comfortable and you know those those moments that he takes to reset after every single combination we'll see a little bit more of a pushback from Kevin Holland than we did in the uh, the Trevor Smith fight you know he likes to flash the, the front kick up the middle, whether it's to the face or to the body, whether it's a teep to the knee. Kevin Holland is throwing, uh, you know, some solid shots from like weird angles and, and, and unorthodox distances. So that's something that Muradov is going to have to, you know, keep an eye on for this fight. Um, I do think the technical striker and the better striker is Mahmoud. You know, he shows solid boxing skills. He does a good job of bringing his leg kicks up as well when he does want to finish conversation. Uh, uh, combinations with head kicks uh, I would like to see him throw in a little bit more combinations you know the one two is nice and all that but you know showing off what he did in that Trevor Smith fight in terms of you know setting traps and then eventually exploiting them later in fights I think he could do that something like that against a guy like Kevin Holland uh, Kevin Holland is seems to do well in terms of picking up on obvious patterns you know what I mean there was an obvious pattern then Darren Stewart was trying to uh, get going in their last fight where he was just continuously attacking the knee with kind of like a knee stomp it was it was kind of weird but kevin holland started time and then was able to counter precisely and, and do solid damage on uh darren stewart there um we did see a little bit of a flaw from kevin holland in that third round against darren stewart when stewart was able to successfully get the fight to the ground um and you know he did some solid work from on top i was kind of uh you know i was I was let down in terms of Kevin Holland's ability to get back to his feet, uh, get back to his feet, retain guard, and the lack of offensive uh, jiu-jitsu we really saw off of his back, considering he's such a high-level jiu-jitsu player. Um, 
we have seen glimpses of Murdov's ability to mix up the MMA game with getting fights to the ground. And I think he, if he wants to, he could get Kevin Holland to the ground. I'm not 100% sure what the top game of Murdov currently looks like, but if he's able to control Kevin Holland and do some good damage on top, he could definitely steal some rounds and some and some, and some some minutes there. Um, again, I do think he's a much better technical striker. My concern here is... Uh, what the disruption of Kevin Holland will do to Muradov's game. You know, I mean, again, it's a, Kevin Holland's not going to go out there and pull a Trevor Smith and allow Mahmoud to really get going and get his combinations together. So if Mahmoud's really not successful in doing that, is he going to be able to open up with the combinations, which makes him a little bit more deadlier and really sets him apart from his opponent? I do like him as a dog. I, w- I do think that we'll see some more money start to come in on Kevin Holland as fight week continues. Uh, but I'm gonna t- I'm gonna sit back a little bit and see where that line goes because I do like Murdov. I may I might bet him. I'm not 100 percent sure yet. Uh, but uh, you know, again, the unorthodox unorthodox nature of Kevin Holland disrupting you know the the flow of Murdov might be a little bit too much for Murdov. I'm not 100 percent sure yet. But I do think skill for skill, Mukmud should absolutely go out there and win this fight. You know, if he is able to really get get going with the body shots, that's something that we saw Joaquin Buckley quite successful with against Kevin Holland was really, you know, landing some good shots to the body. And there were some awkward exchanges where Kevin Holland had some weird striking defense where he's just, you know, he's covering up like this, which is great and all that. And then there were certain instances where he's like jumping to kind of like get out of the way. That's not proper striking defense. I mean, you got to be cutting angles. You can't just be backing up straight up. Uh, you got to start moving in certain directions, certain angles to really get get out of the way of these big shots so um you know seeing some of those striking defense uh deficiencies from kevin holland is a little bit concerning but it's worked for him up and uh, worked for him up until this point you know the last time he did lose was against brendan allen but since then he's put together three solid straight victories this one i think might be the toughest test for him though because i do think murdov is a very dangerous opponent so i will go with murdov to win this fight via decision i think he will end up getting off the better shots you know do some solid work to the body as long as the disruption of the of the weird unorthodox timing and and angles that holland throws out there as long as he's able to withstand that and able to endure that i think he should be able to get into his rhythm really start getting those body shots going and then mix it up to the head he has some powerful striking some beautiful hands um his grappling is slowly starting to come to come to fruition so hopefully that's something that he can kind of flash in this fight really keep hauling on the edge of his uh you know on the tip of his toes if you want to call it that but yeah, I love Mahmoud here. I think he gets it done via decision by just outstriking Kevin Holland for three rounds. So I'm going to go with Mahmoud via decision. Andre Feely versus Bryce Mitchell. We got minus 165 on Thug Nasty and plus 145 on Andre Feely. So let's start off with Andre Feely, who, in my opinion, is being a little bit too overlooked in this fight. Now, I haven't been the biggest Andre Feely fan from the get-go, but he has slowly started to win me over at with each performance and showing in every single performance that he's, you know, trying to become a better fighter and improving in between every single fight. Um, you know, obviously the Sadiq Yusuf fight, uh, he dropped the ball there. That was a very close first round, I believe it was, where he did some good damage on Sadiq Yusuf as well, but most of the judges ended up giving it to Sadiq. Um, but yeah, that that was a tough fight for, for Feely there. Um the Shaman Marais fight was a great fight for him to really bust out and show that he can, you know, he has finishing chops if it has to come down to it. Uh, and then obviously most recently the Charles Jordan fight, 
uh, very close. You know, that, that first round, obviously, Charles Jordan wins because of the uh, pretty much rocking him. And then in the second and third rounds, we really start to see Andre Feely start to lean on the grappling a little bit more. But the one thing that you can't really take away from Andre Feely is the fact that he has a very effective jab. And he doesn't really have the, you know, traditional style and, and stance of an actual striker because he, he likes to, like, wing, the, the you know, his hand down a little bit more. And he brings it up from all these awkward angles. That's a little bit harder for people to really see which angle it's coming from, whether it's going to the body or to the head. But he's very, very effective with it. He uses his range quite well too. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind. Uh, the one, something that has me, or two things that have me a little bit sketched out uh, regarding Feely and how he has to deal with this upcoming matchup with Bryce Mitchell. So we haven't really seen him completely, you know, tested in the grappling realm uh, or, you know, tested to, to, to a legitimate point uh, since the Dennis Bermudez fight, which is a fight where he stuffed plenty of takedowns. I believe uh, Dennis Bermudez was one of 11 on, in that fight. And uh, yeah, he, you know, Philly did a really good job of keeping that fight on the feet. But it also seemed to do with the fact that Philly had a sizable uh, height advantage too. So whenever Dennis Bermudez was trying to like slam him or pick him up or something like that, Philly's feet were still on the ground. So it was a little bit harder for Dennis Bermudez to really complete those takedowns. Um, we saw, uh, sorry, and the second thing that kind of has me a little bit hesitant about uh, Andre Feely is when we did see Sadiq Yusuf on top of him, who's not really known to be, you know, a, a grappler or, a, or you know, a wrestler or anything like that, but Andre Feely did end up slipping in that fight. Sadiq Yusuf found himself on top, and he did some good damage for about two and a half to three minutes where he was controlling and holding Feely down. So that has me a little bit sketched out. But in terms of on the feet here, I think Andre Feely absolutely has the advantage here. The one thing that he needs to worry about is, you know, his kicks. Kicks are something that he likes to add to his game, but one, he's going to have to be really sure to like bring the kicks back as soon as he throws them out there because uh, Bryce Mitchell showed in his last fight against Charles Rosa that that's something that he looks for as an opening for a takedown because Bryce Mitchell isn't the highest level wrestler out there, but he is a really good jiu-jitsu player. But to get that jiu-jitsu going, you need to have good enough wrestling to get fights to the ground or hope that your opponent slips or something like that. You got to get it to the ground somehow, some way. And I believe about two or three fights ago now, Bryce Mitchell actually went to start training at the University of Arkansas with some of the wrestling team over there who's slowly starting to cement themselves as a higher level wrestling school. So that's something that he's clearly working on. Um, and I'd be interested to see how he's able to translate into this into this fight against Andre Feely because that's clearly where he needs this fight to go if he wants any chance of winning this fight. Uh, you know, in terms of Bryce Mitchell's takedowns of what we've seen of him, you know, his single leg uh, seems to be pretty good. He turns angles very well when he does get that uh, that that single leg. Uh, but I do think that Philly is slightly a higher level, uh, you know, grappler than what he has faced in the past. With the exception of Brad Katona and Tyler Diamond, who was, he was also able to get down. But I'm not so sure about Diamonds and Katona's uh, wrestling defense compared to their actual rest, wrestling acumen. So that's something to to be aware of. Bobby Moffitt willingly went out there and continuously took down Bryce Mitchell. And that's definitely where Bryce Mitchell wanted to fight. So that's where he was able to take it away. But then the Matt Sales fight, Sales looked like he had zero takedown defense in that. So he was able to get that fight to the ground and pull off that twister submission. And then the Charles Rosa fight. Like Rosa had no answer at all for the jiu-jitsu that was coming his way from Bryce Mitchell. And then stupidly, in every single round, Charles Rosa starts it off by throwing out a kick, a very lazy kick, and Bryce Mitchell was able to snatch it up and get the fight to the ground. So it's going to be intriguing to see how Andre Feely attempts to approach this because he's going to have to go with the striking heavy game plan, um, at least with his hands, not with the kicks, uh, or even if he does go with the kicks, 
aim them to the calf so they're the hardest to reach uh, and then get them back as soon as possible and maybe follow up with some hands or at least angle off to you know negate any type of follow-up takedown that Bryce Mitchell might have in those situations uh, personally you guys already know me I, I like uh, going with the the grappler when we're talking about grappling and uh, you know grapplers versus strikers but I'm actually feeling Andre Feely here um it's funny how I, I, I threw that uh, together. But, uh, you know, being the dog, plus 145, so obviously he's the value side. If I'm assuming that this fight is a 50-50 fight, um, the only skepticisms I have, just like I said at the top of the breakdown, is uh, the fact that we haven't really seen Feely tested recently with the grappling, um, nor have nor was I really, you know, too excited about what I saw he had off of his back against Sadiq Yusuf. So that those things are lingering feelings for me here. But on the feet, I think he should do absolute work against Bryce Mitchell. You know, that job is going to be money for him. The movement's going to be money for him. The distance management, all of that stuff. That's something that he's going to need to worry about with Bryce Mitchell here. And I know that there might be some people that go out there and break down this fight, saying that, okay, this fight's in a smaller cage. It's going to benefit the grappler. I don't believe too much into that. You know, that's... I feel like that narrative of small cage versus big cage is so overblown. So I don't really look too much into that. Uh, so I do think that Andre Feely will have enough room to just keep to you know keep circling off, you know, doing enough work with his hands to kind of like you know stifle the forward movement of Bryce Mitchell. And I'm not saying Bryce Mitchell is completely you know lackluster and and shit on the feet. He has some decent hands and he has shown that he has power to like drop guys and stuff like that. But the mechanics behind it, the openings that he leaves for for his striking defense are questionable too. Uh, but man, I, I like Feely in this spot. Um, but I, I really got to look into the rest of the dogs for this card because I'd like to see a little bit more uh, from Philly if I truly want to be comfortable here. But I, I do like him. Like he's getting a ton of disrespect just due to how like dominant Bryce Mitchell looked in his last fight against Charles Rosa. And even the Matt Sales fight, like that wasn't really even a fight because Bryce Mitchell got that to the down, to the ground right away and he was able to do work right off the bat and then pull off that twister. So he's looked so dominant in his last two performances that I think it's kind of reflecting in the odds. And it makes sense, you know, that, that definitely does have an effect on the odds. But uh, we got to step back and look at this, like look at his Bobby Moffitt performance. Look at the... Tyler Diamond performance. There's some fights out there where he does start to gas later in the fight. So if things aren't completely going his way, how is it going to look? It's kind of like how I touched on the, um, what's the other fight? There was one more fight where I'm talking about confidence. Uh, I do want to look at it. I do want to touch on it real quickly. It might be for this weekend or the, the, the coming weekend. Um, yeah, Justin Gaethje. So that's that's a perfect example in terms of like where a guy's cardio has been suspect in the past, but then looks really good in his most recent fight against Tony Ferguson uh, because everything's going his way. He's not stressing out or anything like that. Thing, it looks really good for him. So uh, yeah, I, I'm a little bit skeptical about Andre Feely. However, I do lean him here as the dog, and I think he has a solid chance of pulling off the upside here um, by keeping this fight on the feet, kind of working the hands, uh, continuously moving. And again, working over there at Team Alpha, you got to believe that some of his his grappling and his wrestling have to be up to par enough to be able to, to defend whatever Bryce Mitchell is bringing over at him. So I like Andre Feely. I think he's a solid dog spot here. Uh, and I'll, I'll think about possibly taking a shot on him depending on what the other dogs on the card are saying or are whispering to me. But yeah, I like Andre Feely. I think he gets it done via decision. Um, 
maybe even third round stoppage like if we see Andre Feely go out there and touch up Bryce Mitchell for two rounds it's really going to stress out Bryce it's going to make him work it's going to you know affect his cardio and we could see Andre Feely come alive in that third round who we know has solid cardio himself too so I do like Andre Feely either third round finish or uh, a decision so final play Andre Feely via decision and for the main event, we got Uriah Hall versus Anderson Silva. This is a fight that's been uh, scheduled in the past. Uh, I believe it was UFC 198 where it was supposed to go down, and then uh, Silva fell ill, so that fight was not able to go down. But that was a that was a fight where a lot of people were really really looking forward to it. And the difference, obviously, between the two now is uh, that one was originally scheduled for three rounds. This is now five rounds. And they've also had a little bit of experience between that amount of time as well. We're talking about uh, Uriah Hall, who's gone 3-3 three and three in that amount of time, currently on a two-fight winning streak. And Anderson Silva, on the other hand, has gone 1-3 and three in that amount of time with a very questionable decision victory over Derek Brunson last, uh, in that one win. So right now, he's on a two-fight losing streak. Uriah Hall's on a two-fight winning streak. And it's pretty much a tale of what their careers are looking like currently. You know, Uriah Hall... Just made his move over to uh, 4 to 7 May. That was actually right before uh, the Antonio Carlos Jr. fight. So he had taken roughly nine months off between the Bevan Lewis fight and the ACJ fight. And and in that amount of time, he moved his uh, training from California over to, uh, I believe it's the Texas area. I'm not exactly sure where uh, within Texas, but Fortis MMA with Safe Sayud. Uh, a couple other big names there. We got Jeff Neal. Ryan Spann is over there as well, too. Um, Alex Morono is another fighter out of there. But uh, Fortis MMA has really gotten a lot of like rub in the last couple years, I should say. Like a lot of people are, are really high on that gym, and me included. You know, I mean, Safe Sayud seems to be a very uh, direct and legit coach in terms of exactly what fighters need when they go over there. Another prime example of a guy who seems to have changed his career or turned his career around since going down to Fortis MMA is Carlos Diego Fajeda, who finds himself on a you know a legitimate streak now, going out there and beating name guys like Merbek Tysimov and Anthony Pettis, and you know looking like a, a legit contender in that division. So, uh, big shout out to Fortis MMA; they're doing big things over there. In terms of odds of what we're looking at, is minus two twenty for Uriah Hall, plus one eighty for Anderson Silva. And I have some thoughts on this fight in terms of how I believe it's going to go down. So let's talk about Uriah Hall and the seemingly the seeming improvements that he made in that ACJ fight. It was a split decision victory for him. It was very close. Like it was damage of Uriah Hall on the feet compared to the control time that ACJ was getting for most of that fight. I believe it was like 10 minutes of total control time that Antonio Carlos Jr. had. And then uh, we had Uriah Hall land a significant amount of significant strikes. Um you could tell on the feed they were like miles apart. Um, Uriah Hall's jab is just piston like fast. Even in his loss to Paulo Costa at UFC 226, that was a fight where, you know, Paulo Costa obviously went on to win that fight in the second round with the uh, TKO. But uh, a solid amount of that fight, and Paulo Costa did take a, some good damage in that fight, was strictly from the jab of uh, Uriah Hall. And even moving backwards, like he was sticking it out in their face, uh, very pissing. Like not a lot of people were able to block it. And ACJ really felt it, especially in that first round where he broke his nose off of one of those jabs as well, too. So I think that's a very important part of Uriah Hall's game. Once he, If he's able to stay, establish that jab and really build some confidence behind it, I think it allows him to really open up the majority of his game. But there are still uh, instances where we see him get pushed up against the cage, where we see him get slowed down by his opponent. 
And luckily for him in the ACJ fight, he was, I think him breaking uh, Antonio Carlos Jr.'s nose early in the fight really allowed him to, to uh, you know, get the rub from the judges and showing him that, uh, that the damage from his jabs were actually very, very effective. Um, in this fight against Anderson Silva, though, it's it's going to be a little bit more difficult. Uh, you know, Anderson Silva, say what you want about him and post-PEDs and all that type of stuff. He still has decent movement for a guy at his age. Uh, I believe he's 42 at this point in time. I just want to confirm that. Oh, 42. What am I talking about? He's 45 years old. Guy's definitely up there. Um, yeah, you know, he s- still seems to have a little bit of movement. Had a little bit of success in the Cannoneer fight. Had a little bit of success in the Adesanya fight. Obviously, the Derek Brunson fight, that was one where he looked decent enough to actually get a decision victory. But then again, like it was a very close fight. And most people actually scored it for Derek Brunson too. And also, that was over three and a half years ago. So we're we're talking about a long time removed since then. Um, the, the Jared Cannoneer fight now was close to uh, 17 months ago. So it's it's not good for him in terms of having these lengthy layoffs in between his fights. Um, but one thing that has been confirmed in the last day or two is the fact that he's confirmed that this is his last fight. This is going to be his retirement fight. And for a lot of people, that brings up a lot of red flags. When you talk about a guy who's seen, knowing that he's going into his retirement, uh, some people just love to fade that. I'm not, I'm not a true believer in that. And people can say what they want about like, you know, the Caitlin Chukagian thing this last uh, week where, you know, she talked about wanting to retire eventually and start a family and all that. And then obviously she went out there and got finished. Um, I think it really truly depends on the fighter. Now, luckily for Anderson Silva here, he's he's fighting a guy that, you know, mentally has had issues. We've seen Uriah Hall kind of just mentally break in fights. And I find it a little bit skeptical that he's going up against more than likely somebody that he's idolized coming into his MMA career. You know what I mean? He's talked about how much he looks up to Anderson Silva, and it's like, uh, I believe that if anybody would get affected by the aura of Anderson Silva, it's a guy who has the, the mental capacity of Uri Hall. Um, I'm hoping for Hall's, you know, progression of his career that he's been able to go out there and actually fix that. Because um, when he really truly puts it together and, like, gets his hand go- hands going, gets his movements going, uh, gets his feints going, he really is one of the baddest men, uh, baddest men in the world. Um, but, yeah, like... Uh, when he's pressured, when guys are really putting it on him, he seems to fold a little bit. And Anderson Silva seems like he could potentially do that. You know what I mean? When he's just walking forward, doing his crazy movements, some of his capoeira stuff, that might throw Uriah Hall off a little bit. And then he's just out there just kind of um, depending on that one-punch knockout or that spinning heel kick or something like that. That's probably the worst thing you could have as a fighter in terms of false sense of security that, okay, even if I'm down in a fight, I can just go out there and land a bomb and potentially finish a fight. What if that bomb doesn't land? You know what I mean? You're, and this goes the full three rounds. You're probably going to lose a decision. Obviously, it worked out for him in the ACJ fight, but what does it look like when he's going out there and fighting a, uh, you know, a skilled striker like Anderson Silva as well? And yeah, again, I get it. He's 45 years old, so that's something to take into consideration. And obviously, it's been a long time since we've seen him fight. And Uriah Hall should go out there and actually absolutely dust Anderson Silva. But at minus 220, for some reason, I just I just can't find the confidence to go out there and bet him. When this fight was announced, I'm like, all right, Uriah Hall, lock of the night. No problem about that. That's going to be my play. But when I really start to dig into it, like it seems like a little bit of a sketchy spot. He should go in there and beat him. But one thing that I really want to see is Uriah Hall really establish himself at that Fortis MMA camp. Like I want to see what he looks like when he fights different types of guys coming from that camp. Do we see actual improvements? 
obviously he's going to be a huge uh there's going to be huge discrepancy between him and Antonio Carlos Antonio Carlos Jr on the feet so that's why he looked as good as he did on the feet but he still went out there and got controlled you know that that's a close fight some again one judge gave it to Antonio Carlos Jr what if there was another judge in that seat or a different judge in a different seat and actually gave it to Antonio Carlos Jr then we're talking about a Uri Hall coming off a loss and uh you know the experiment at Fortis MMA kind of being a uh you know a a complete uh why can't i think of the word uh <laughs> a complete uh bust that's what that's what i'm looking for so i like i like and or sorry uriah hall to still win this fight i think with his footwork with his speed with his youth he should still be able to go out there and get the job done obviously with the the head coaching as well too i think they'll be able to come up with a good game plan to go out there and beat anderson silva one thing I think they should really focus on is the leg kicks as well. You know, Jared Cannonier put a lot into those shots and not a lot. You can't just say that, okay, it was one leg kick that led to that injury finish for uh, for Jared Cannonier. It wasn't a call. It was a, an accumulation of shots. If you watch that fight, he landed a significant amount of strikes to that leg, which eventually led to, you know, it messing up on Anderson Silva later in the fight. Now, I'm not saying that Uriah Hall is going to go out there and stop him with leg kicks, but it should stifle the forward movement of Anderson Silva. It should stifle uh, Silva's ability to get fancy and, and spinny and all that stuff, which it might uh, kind of screw up Uriah Hall. But I like Uriah Hall on this. I think that he'll go out there, uh, establish that jab. There are some instances where you see Anderson Silva kind of with his hands down, just waiting for his moment to, to plunge. And that's kind of the spots where Uriah Hall should take advantage and stick that jab out there. Don't get don't let Anderson Silva get comfortable. You know what I mean? Obviously, he's going to gonna have to expect some counters on the way back. But the more you stuff that jab out there, the more it's going to really demoralize Anderson Silva. So... I do like Uriah Hall in this. It's very tough for me to go out there and say that Anderson Silva is worth betting at this point in his career with it being his last fight, with him being 45 years old, with Uriah Hall just having all the physical advantages at this point in time. It's going to all come down to his mental. And, you know, I got to believe that he's got, you know, this is a headlining spot. Five rounds against Anderson Silva. It's kind of like his uh, coming-to-be moment. You know what I mean? Go out there beat the guy that you idolize for however long and really step into your own step into that mold that a lot of people expected you to step into when you uh came off the ultimate fighter you know i mean even though he lost to calvin Gaston, people still had high hopes for him and he still went out there and stumbled several times uh but now this is the time take that main event spot and really put on a statement so i'm gonna take uh uriah hall to potentially win this i, I could see it being a little bit of a slower pace fight where these guys are kind of just respecting each other too much. So I'll actually take Uriah Hall to win this fight by by, by decision. Uh, kind of just picking up our Anderson over from the outside. Never really landing a flush enough power shot to put on Anderson. And a lot of people are also questioning the durability of Anderson Silva. Yeah, it was the leg that gave out one of the times. But the last time he actually got legit knocked out was the only time against Anderson or against Chris Weidman when the, the world turned on its head. He has never been finished via punches then. So I, I still believe Anderson Silva's uh, uh, durability, his chin, and I think it's just going to be Uriah Hall going out there, landing the jab consistent and often, um, and then just racking up the points and getting a decision victory. So if there's anything, any prop that you're looking at, I think Uriah Hall by decision is probably the way to go. But I do like Uriah to win this fight. Uh, again, youth, athleticism, speed, explosiveness, everything is on his side. It's just got to be his mentor. If he gets his mentor straight... This is a cakewalk for him. But for some reason, 
I don't know if I'll be able to pull the trigger on him myself. We'll see when the fight gets a little bit closer and see where the odds get themselves as well. Uh, but I do like uh, Uriah Hall to win this fight via decision. And those are the breakdowns. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Every single breakdown for every single fight. Appreciate you guys checking it out. If you guys haven't already, make sure you guys subscribe, hit like as well too, and even drop your picks in the comment section below. And I'd be more than happy to go back and forth with you guys a little bit if you guys want to chat. Um, again, once again, I just got to uh, plug the Patreon, hit up the Patreon. The uh, link is in the description below. Five bucks a month, you guys get a ton of content, early access to all the breakdowns, as well as a bunch of other things. And... Uh, there is one more thing. Oh, yeah, sorry. On Friday, once again, uh, since it is a newer thing, I'm going to continue to remind you guys every Friday I'll be doing my MMA Lawcast live stream uh, where from 5.30 to 6.30 where I just take pretty much any and all questions and comments and concerns in the chat and I try to address them on the live stream. I know a lot of people are loving it. We peaked at, I believe, 97 live viewers last time around, which is mind-blowing to me that 97 people are willing to sit there and watch me live talk about shit. But even the post uh, post video after it um, archived and uploaded to YouTube, it got over 1,300 views, so I was pretty surprised about that. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing that number continuously grow. I appreciate you guys always checking it out. I'll appreciate you guys even more if I see you in the live stream, and I'm looking forward to doing it every single week. So... Uh, once again, appreciate you guys watching the video. Subscribe, like, do all that shit. Comment section below. Let me know what your picks are. And I will see you Friday for the MMA Lawcast Live where we do just final thoughts for UFC Vegas 12. So, uh, yeah, appreciate you guys watching and I'll see you guys Friday. <laughs>